Hello, I'm Oliver Wong. And I'm Morgan Rhodes. You're listening to Heat Rocks. Every episode, we invite a guest to join us to talk about, you know, fire smokers, scorchers, combustibles, a heat rock, an album seared into their collective being. And today, we're taking it to Macon and Memphis, the King of Soul, Otis Redding, and the pivotal 1992 anthology of his greatest hits, the very best of Otis Redding. I've got dreams dreams to remember I've got dreams dreams to remember Honey I saw you there last night Another man's arms holding you tight How do you choose a sweet 16 to represent the very best of this man's discography, and who should be given the honor of doing so. Well, in November 1992, 25 years after Otis Redding and his bandmates went on to be with the Lord, Atlantic Records, who, due to a legal technicality and gangster tactics, owned the rights to Stack's entire catalog and decided to add their two cents to the compilation game, assembling the hits, some of his biggest to date, written or co-written by him. These include Respect, a song synonymous with these two words, Aretha Franklin, and Satisfaction, arguably the best-known song of Keith, Mike, Bill, Brian, Mick, and Charlie's catalog. Stax Records' Al Bell described the label's output as, quote, a combination of gospel, blues, country, and its raw, Gutsy Soul, which is the perfect way to characterize Stack's stacked roster, this album, and the sound and spirit of one Otis Redding. He was a gentle giant, 6'2", 220 pounds of vulnerability and mindfulness, a husband and father with immense level emotional IQ, high enough to know when he'd been loving you too long, secure enough to declare the strength of his love. For reasons I won't get into here, the phrase handpicked music sort of gets on my nerves now. But in the case of this compilation, I say God bless the hands and the heart of their curator. Because how do you choose a sweet 16 to represent this man's catalog, a life and career interrupted? He did a lot with a little time, just five years. But in those five years, he gave us five on the black hand side. Listen to me, mama. The very best of Otis Redding was the album pick of our guest today, Jamie Stewart, who listeners may know best as the founder and frontman of the Bay Area band Shushu, which has recorded 13 albums since forming in 2002. The one predictable thing you can say about his music making is his unpredictability. <laughs> After all, this is someone who in recent years has helped helm everything from Nina, a Nina Simone tribute album, to the rather self-explanatory Plays the Music of Twin Peaks, to Angel Guts' Red Classroom, an album so dark that its own press release described it as, quote, the sound of Shushu's death, unquote. 
My favorite fun fact about Stewart is that while he grew up as a kid in L.A., he spent much of the 1990s living in Silicon Valley, which is where he came of age listening to San Jose Pirate Radio. And shout out to Billy Jam and all the Bay Area Pirate (laughs) DJs of the 90s. It was a good era to be on the bad side of the FCC. (laughs) Jamie Stewart, welcome. Thank you very much. Now, you are known for your... I would say very broad embrace of different musical styles and traditions and genres. So it wouldn't have surprised me if you had come in here with some kind of uh, left field outsider folk album, but instead you choose to talk about the best-selling greatest hits album of one of the undisputed R&B masters of all time, Otis Redding. Mm -hmm. Why did you want to talk about Otis and why this album in particular? Uh, Well, the first part of that is when I was, uh, young teen and started getting more serious about music my dad who was a music uh, a record producer and yeah. a session guitar player um i think he he could see that i was you know listening to the radio with a, maybe an excess of attention <laughs> and he you know he he realized that i you know it it was music was beating to me and a lot to me so he uh, very very memorably gave me this record and uh and interestingly stopped making sense by talking heads uh so you know two really different but kind of similar similar worlds and that you know both of those both artists were really really groundbreaking and it, it broadened my ears tremendously so it was it was probably the first serious record that i ever had yeah um and it was you know like uh the, probably the the first time that i think any anybody in my family and a lot of other my other my family members were deep and serious musicians also kind of realized that i was on the the dark path and you know, <laughs> gave me an encouraging pat on the head and said, okay, learn, learn, learn from this young Stuart. I'm wondering along those lines, I mean, given that your late father was, as you mentioned, was a producer and a sessionist, I believe your uncle was a songwriter and was very deeply involved in the music business as well. Yeah. Were you encouraged to pursue this or would you, I've heard from a lot of other children of musicians, they were discouraged from following mm-hmm. the same path. It was, it was a funny thing. In some ways, I was very much encouraged to do it, in, but in a roundabout way, in so far as my dad would just sort of leave pieces of gear in my room with no explanation. <laughs> you know, there'd be a synthesizer there one day, and he would sort of see if I would take to it. And I remember the day the synthesizer disappeared, I realized that I had not done enough work on it. Uh, you know, or one day I came home and there was a four, like a four-track cassette, like without without mm. my asking. But he never really showed me how to do anything at all i he just it was he sort of threw me in the pool and said you know sink sink or swim which um so in i mean he i think he wanted to see if if i was going to be real about yeah. it and it took me a long a long time but we we never sat down and oh no once we sat down <laughs> and played guitar together and i think he realized that i sucked and he just <laughs> didn't have the time for it um, and then conversely my my mother absolutely did not want me to do it mm-hmm. um and even as I mean, and she, I mean, she's glad I'm doing what I want to do now, but I mean, as, re- as recently as a couple months ago, she said to me, how long are you going to keep doing this for? So <laughs> it's been, it's been mixed, you know? Right. So it's, yeah. I, I do like the idea that if you're familiar with the, uh, the Japanese anime Wolf and the Cub, that it begins with this, this like Ronin or samurai figure giving his infant son a choice between a ball and a sword to see which one he chooses. Yeah. And <laughs> the synthesizer in the room is to see like if you're going to choose this pattern. Cold blooded out there. <laughs> For this album, when you first heard it, was it love at first listen, or did it have to grow on you? It was both things. I I think it was love at first listen because I I mean it's if you listen to it, you just immediately it blows your brains sure. out. Even if you know you're 
a 14-year-old from the Valley. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, uh, and then also, like, you know, my dad was cool and I wanted my dad to think I was cool. So I listened to it a mm-hmm. lot. And because of that, uh, it, it, it grew on me. But then also, I mean, it's even though all the songs are incredibly direct, there's, there's a tremendous amount of depth to it. So when I say it, it grew on me, I could say it's still growing on me. I mean, sure. I'd, I mean I listened, I've listened to it on and off since, you know, I was a child. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for this show, listening to it again, I, I mean, there's a, a lot in there that I missed before or is touching me in a, in a new way. So it grew on me, and not in that I didn't like it at first, but it's, it grew on me in that it's an incredibly expansive piece yeah. of work. When your father gave it to you to listen to, did he give you instructions to go with it? Like, did he explain, like, this is why I want you, know, I'm, I want you to listen to this? Yeah, he did, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it had to do, uh, it was essentially learning all about feel, um, mm-hmm. which is really the thing about this record that still gives me chills when I listen to it, is it was, you know, the absolute best players at the time, the, the best backing band. And, uh, 100%. And Al Jackson on drums and Duck Down on bass and Steve, Steve Cropper, Cropper and Booker T and, you know, and the Memphis Horns and... And Otis is singing also. I mean, even though he's, you don't generally think of singing in that era, you know, kind of pre-rap as being something that's really super rhythmic and really propulsive. And, you know, it's just kind of before, uh, you know, predates funk a, by, uh, yeah. by a little bit. Yeah. You know, but his his singing, even though it's uh, incredibly loose and way, way behind the beat, is still really trucking everything forward, you know, and it's... It's not, you know, a lot of singers, almost all singers really and, you know, rely on the band to kind of keep them going. Um, I'm not that that band, you know, needed this from Otis, but he he is right there with them the whole time. Sure. I mean, on, on, a, on a lot of, especially on the, on the live tracks, it's, it, uh, it's pretty mind boggling how far back and loose it is, but how hard it pushes forward. So he, he basically wanted me to listen to it for that. And that's, uh, you know, something that I've still, I mean, from a not really an academic standpoint, but almost from like a physical and emotional standpoint, still get a, as a player, still get a tremendous amount from as a resource essentially. I'm interested in uh, how we all came to. Otis Redding. How did you come to Otis Redding, Oliver? What really brought me into contact with his catalog came in the early 90s when I was living in the Bay Area, and I saved up all of my Amoeba store credit um, <laughs> and uh, and went to went to the, the, the Berkeley branch, the original one. I was going to ask which one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the OG Berkeley one, and used the, the store credit to buy the nine CD complete stacks uh, Volt collection volume one Mm -hmm. which covers i think was 26 of his released 45 sides up through his death so i think dock of the bay was one of the last ones that was in that that first volume all these incredible soul men are on there right you got sam and dave you have rufus thomas Mm -hmm. uh, you have one of my personal favorites the i think the criminally undersung william bell but even amongst this killer crew otis was so incomparable and i was just thinking about how Someone like a Sam Cooke had that the pureness in his timbre is one of the distinguishing things about about Cooke's voice. And, you know, Ray Charles or Stevie Wonder both have this incredible personality that shines through. But with Otis, and th- this is why I was thinking about what, what your dad was telling you about feel, right? Otis had this pathos with every note that he sung. Mm-hmm. And you listen to something like his early single, uh, Pain in My Heart, mm. and you can just sense that there is this tidal force 
of a mode of power beneath his voice that he's making is clear he's making it clear to the listener that it's there and that he's in control of it through his restraint rather than just being a straight belter but it's actually more powerful because you know he's holding back and you know that he has it fine tuned in that sure. Sure, and in the performances that you see, I think you both bring up good points. One, about his relationship to the band that comes across in his performance, because it isn't just about him and the microphone. There is a relationship between him and the band that they're, he's already got the emotion and they're taking him higher. Yeah, they all, they all talked about that they were his favorite. That group played together a lot and backed a bunch sure. of Stax and Volta players. They, they said that he was his absolute, that he was their favorite person to play with, mm-hmm. that they, there was a real personal and musical connection between them. Absolutely. And when you see the li- when you see some of the live performances, it's not as if he's directing them. It's like he's imploring them to help me get to this emotional place. That's like a good you, way to you, put that. You yeah. get me and I get you. I'm just going to stamp my feet. And by the time I get to that third gotta gotta, yeah. you know, <laughs> you know where, we, where we have to go, right? You bring up a good point about this emotional quality. And I'm glad you mentioned Sam Cooke because there are a lot of comparisons. Mm-hmm. The difference between uh, those two, and this is, you know, loose, you know, somebody out here will get it. But to me, Sam Cooke is kale. And Otis Redding is collards. Both leafy vegetables. One's got a little bit more salt, right? Sam was a little bit more polished. Yes, right. You know, all these singers of this time grew up in the church. But to me, Otis Redding didn't have your typical gospel delivery because there weren't all these runs. It was restraint and it was knowing when to hold back and when to stretch out that note a little bit. And so I'm glad you got you you brought that up because it was just something different about that man. The sw- you know, the sweating when he was singing a lot of I just mm. watched so many live performances last night of his eyes closed and just being a man possessed yeah, by he, he's, by, he's by these it. songs. Yeah. Um I came to know him the same way you did through sitting on the dock of the bay. Yeah. Um I w- I really wanted to learn how to whistle when I was little. <laughs> <laughs> and so when my dad played this song I would really try and whistle and you know it, I wasn't I wasn't cool then. Now I can whistle. But that was my <laughs> coming to him that song and then later on uh, we did an episode where we talked about the soundtrack to Pretty in Pink. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. Uh, Try a Little Tenderness. Ducky. Uh, uh, Ducky. Yeah, right? that was a good episode. <laughs> great. That was a great episode and, and a great moment because I think it illustrates that, you know, Ducky's character wasn't just being dramatic, that he had to have that sort of interpret interpretation of the song because the song lends itself to that. And then later on, um, I got into more of his catalog when I was working on Selma because we wanted mm. to use um, some of the uh, more obscure cuts from 1965 or, or the ones that would be people wouldn't expect us to pull. And so I ended up placing Old Man Trouble oh, uh, cool. in, in, a, in a scene with uh, Martin Luther King and his inner core. They go and, uh, and eat breakfast together. And so that, you know, took me down the road of, of Otis Blue, which I, I wasn't familiar with at all. So mm. that was a revelation. I wonder for each of you, and Jamie, you were talking a little bit about this before, about the idea that every time you come back to this album, and really just come back to Otis, whether it's this album or not, there, there's always something new to hear. 
What do you hear now that perhaps you didn't hear when you were, I don't know, 13 or 14 when you first heard it? Um, I, I think, and this is both fortunate and, and, and unfortunate, um, it's hard for me to listen to a lot of records now and not listen to them from a technical standpoint or sort of kind of pick them apart. I sure. think a lot of musicians sort of... yeah sort of deal with that uh but you know i mean stuff like on i mean on the oft mentioned try a little tenderness as that song Mm -hmm. kind of about two-thirds of the way into it the band really starts ramping up and there's uh and i don't know how much of this was improvised probably a lot of it because all those guys were such badasses but there's just like syncopation with the guitar and little kind of like organ like little kind of organ riffs that are that are kind of sprinkled in there there's really not a tremendous amount going on i mean there's the little piano figure and otis singing and a little kind of ride going but you feel like a lot's going on so there's a ton of room for them to sprinkle in these little kind of jabs and, and riffs in there and uh i mean i'd i mean up until a couple of years ago i mean i probably heard that song like everybody 700,000 times yeah. i'd never went oh my god that's amazing <laughs> i never heard that before sure it's so subtle but it's so incredibly powerful and well and well chosen i mean kind of like you said restraint i mean that's sort of the the thing about a lot of these players and a lot of music of, of that era everything is so explosive and so cool but it's they're just sort of barely letting you know how mighty they are. Yeah. Yeah. Squeeze don't tease Never leave say and we might get back more into this later in the second half of the show but with try a little tenderness in particular i mean how many songs have that open quiet slow finish fast hard dynamic like who does it better than that song it's really hard i mean <laughs> you may have answered point the taken. question <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> point taken especially when you when you consider the fact that this song was also uh, covered by Frank Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald and it sounds completely different oh yeah I would imagine completely different yeah. because it doesn't have that emotional build not just because these are jazz singers but it just doesn't have they're not able to get and to Frank that and Frank is place. dead inside that, <laughs> 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 there's that <laughs> she may be weary Women do get weary Wearing the same shabby dress So try a little tenderness, yeah. It does have that bill that, that no one could get to. I think I think the thing in preparing for this chat that I didn't realize that I, I learned more about Otis is how often the word tender came up. There's three mm. songs on the album that you picked. Oh, yeah, yeah. Where Tender is to obviously Try a Little Tenderness, uh, These Arms of Mine, he mentions t- Tender, and uh, uh, I've Got Dreams to Remember. He uses a lot of kind of uncool words, like in... Yeah. Uh, Moist. In, <laughs> in Happy Song, which, you know, the melody... Half of the lyrics are terrible, which yeah. is hard for me to say, but ha- but the melody is great. Yeah. Sure. But he uses... He really kind of like it kind of grooves on the word lovely a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Which yes. is a peculiar choice, but yeah, I mean, he was he was he was a, a softy, I think. He was so- soft on the inside. I mean, if you're okay with being given the nickname Mister Pitiful, yeah, and then you turn it into a <laughs> yeah, song, that's true. you got to be secure in your fragility, your emotional fragility. And right. I think I think Otis Redding was that for sure. Yeah, and how many artists can pull off? A line like "dum dum 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 dee dum dum" and make it actually sound pretty yeah, good. Yeah, it's, a, it's a, the melody <laughs> for that is sing. really cool. Right? <laughs> it's the only cool part of that song. <laughs> That's why I sing these 
question about covers and i wanted to know in terms of covers obviously you have shake which is a sam cook cover but satisfaction um i don't want to put you on the hot seat here because i know for a lot of people the rolling stones are, are precious i like them okay okay they're not i mean i think the the this, the stones have some fantastically great songs sure but they, they're not one of my bands that i feel like i can't be honest about um, you think Oda should have touched Satisfaction? I think it was probably kind of a marketing thing at the time. Um, it's not. It's it's probably my least favorite song okay. on that record. I mean, he still does a great job. Sure. I mean, and I mean, not that I dislike the Stones, but I'm not you know bell before them kind of fan. Yeah. Uh, I mean that. I mean, their version is amazing, also. Sure. Um, but you know, it's it's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> but but you know, like after after that is uh you know, My Lover's Prayer and Yeah. I mean if you listen to if you just heard Satisfaction by itself, you go, Oh, that's that's pretty cool. But then that comes up and you're like ah, it doesn't yeah. compare. No, yeah. <laughs> Not yeah. at all. Yeah. But it's okay. He, he just makes it he just makes it feel different. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Rolling Stones is unabashedly sexual. I can't get no satisfaction. Yeah, like, and it's just like a little party boogie yeah. sort of, you yeah. know, that maybe his manager asked him to do. <laughs> <laughs> right. And and it seems like he's singing about communication woes. Like we just don't talk to each other, right? Yeah. Where with the Rolling Stones is like, you know what that satisfaction yeah. <laughs> you know what that satisfaction is. Mom, don't listen to this episode. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going down a road here. But I think really ballsy on his part to to take that on it. Yeah. Is like, yeah, it was I mean, I'm sure the the Stones were profoundly flattered sure. oh, yeah. had to be had to be yeah. had to be I thought since you brought covers you want to talk about respect though yeah yeah, yeah I mean yeah, we can get to that it doesn't yeah, yeah, it, yeah. we can get to that I think we we might have even touched on this during our Aretha episode from sure. a, a few weeks or months back and it's funny because I think my experience is not unusual which is you hear the Aretha version first growing up because it is the yeah I didn't, I didn't know and you didn't even realize it was a cover song until years later it's like and you, and at first you think oh Otis covered respect no, that's like, what like, I thought like, too no no yeah. no that actually he that he, he had the first recording for it and so it's there's there's this weird cognitive dissonance with comes in trying to situate his respect as the like the quote-unquote original and then thinking of aretha's as the cover which i think for me at least it makes me like aretha's version even better mm. in the way in which she made it her own i know we say that all the time it's kind of but, cliche, I know what you mean. Yeah. but she did yeah. i mean that is oh, now the definitive I mean, version obviously yeah. i'm a huge fan but there's no comparison like no. her yeah. her version is a hundred thousand times yeah better yeah but I mean, Otis, his version is cool, but, but his, it doesn't. His doesn't version care. is really fun. It's yeah. it's funky. I, I think on this album in particular, I don't necessarily love a lot of the more up tempo stuff. I think the ballads are really, really the best parts of it. But respect of the more mid up tempo stuff is, I think, great on its own. Sure. And if, if it was not for the fact that Aretha came out with one of the best songs ever recorded in the history of mankind, yeah. <laughs> like this would actually be a really solid track yeah, for sure, yeah. yeah. sure. Hey, no. brought up the importance of the backing band, the, stu- the studio sessioners who were the Stacks Fold House Band, which is Brooker T and the MGs, 
has to go down as one of the greatest house bands in history. And, and Jamie, I mean, you already you shouted out a few of the key players there. You have Steve Cropper, you have Al Jackson Jr., you have Donald Duck Dunn uh, at all. And I think, you know, when I was in my 20s, because I was young and stupid, I felt like there, there was a choice to be made. Either you rolled with Memphis or you rolled with Motown. <laughs> and you, you had to pick a side. It was the death row bad boy of, 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 that, of the soul era, you're if you will. A, you're not alone. <laughs> and I declared myself in favor of Stax and Volt partially, or not even partially, largely because the Memphis sound was so irresistible to me. And it was impossible to imagine what that sound would sound like if not for the kind of quality work that Booker T and the MGs were turning in. Obviously, not just for Otis. I mean, they're across so many of the songs that came out in the 60s uh, on the labels. But with Otis, as, as Jamie were saying, I mean, this is someone... They love to play with, and it really felt like they brought a lot of their A game uh, to it. And I'm just wondering, and I would love to hear your take on this, especially as a musician. What is it that they're doing that works so well with what Otis is doing? I mean, just like one of the greatest and most difficult parts about music is you can't, I mean, I could try to mumble through it, but if you listen to it for a second, you go, oh, that's what they're doing. I mean, they're just playing amazing. (laughs) That's That's kind of all that it is. I mean, at that music, they were the best. And at that, at that singing, Otis was the best. And he played piano a bunch with them, too. I mean, he was, and guitar, I mean, he's a great instrumentalist also, yeah. which a lot of people don't really talk about. I mean, some people are just the best. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. what they did. Yeah. 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 I, I love Motown and I always have love from, from Motown. And we could, you know, spend doing a whole nother show on their catalog. But I'm partial to Stax because my dad's from Memphis, born and raised. Wow. He went to Lester High School. Oh, wow, wow. Had some great, great stories about, you know, some of the people, Carla and Rufus, performing at you know high school talent shows, wow. and then going on to do their thing. BB King was a DJ on WDIA, right? And Bobby Blue Bland was his driver. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of history there. They just seem more. It's just more gully. They were less polished, I think, than Motown. Motown seemed like they had a lot of press behind them, and Stax was just like, "Yo, they were country." Yeah, they're country. Memphis yeah. was country, yeah, yeah. and uh, I don't want to hear from my my, my folks from Detroit because I have love for Motown, but if. Right. If I have to choose, I'm going with stacks. As I've gotten Just older, like I realize and one doesn't have to choose. You can right. embrace both, yeah. and there is a multitude of sure. complexity and beauty that can be found across that spectrum. I've been loving you a little too long. I don't want to stop We will be back with more of our conversation with Jamie Stewart about the very best of Otis Redding after a brief word from a couple of our Sibling Max Fun podcasts. Keep it locked. Hi, I am Lori Kilmartin. And I'm Jackie Cashin. Together, we host a podcast called The Jackie and Lori Show. Uh, We're both stand-up comics. We recently met each other because women weren't allowed to work together on the road or in gigs for a long, long time. And so our friendship has been unfolding on this podcast for a couple of years. Jackie constantly works the road. I write for Conan and then I work the road in between. We do a lot of stand-up comedy. And so we celebrate stand-up and yes. we also bitch about it. We keep it to an hour. We don't have any guests. We somehow find enough to talk about every single week. So find us. You can subscribe to The Jackie and Lori Show at MaximumFun.com org or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, bye. 
Hi, I'm Allie Gertz. And I'm Julia Prescott, and we're the host of Everything's, Everything's Coming, Coming Up, Simpsons. Simpsons. Every episode, we cover a different episode of The Simpsons that is a favorite of our special guests. We've had guests that are showrunners and writers and voice actors like Nancy Cartwright. I got a D minus, I passed! And we've also had people that are on the Max Fun Network already. We've had Weird Al Yankovic on the show. I was just uh, struck by how sharp the writing is. I mean, yeah. that's no surprise because it's The Simpsons, but I mean, like, you can't say that about a lot of, a lot of TV shows, particularly ones that at that point have been on the air for 14 years. Find us on MaximumFun.org, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Smell you later. And we're back on Hate Rocks, talking about the 1992 compilation, The Very Best of Otis Redding, with our guest, Jamie Stewart. So, Jamie, I mentioned to a friend, and shout out to Todd if he's listening out there, who has been following your musical career since you formed your first band, The Indestructible Beat of Palo Alto. Oh, Great boy. name, by the way. <laughs> and he was surprised by your album pick because he didn't see an obvious uh, influence of Otis on the kind of music that you and, and Shushu are known for making. And so this kind of raises an obvious question, which is, is there an influence of Otis on the music that you make? Yeah, I mean, in a, and I kind of talked about this before, and um, it would, it's a little difficult to pick out, but it's essentially just really being aware of feel mm. and uh, to occasional degrees of success and occasionally completely blowing it, kind of in obvious interplays of, of rhythm and, thing, and things like that. Uh, I mean, I don't sing anything like him. I can't play anything like Steve Cropper, although I wish I could. <laughs> but uh, it's just being, a, being aware of how, where, uh, you know, a beat lands not, necessarily mathematically mm-hmm. behind or or ahead of you know the sort of exact exact downbeat how that affects things emotionally or how that and how that affects things physically um i you know i i think kind of like everyone you know recording a computer and a lot of times you know i'll play and i'll go oh, i don't sound like i want to sound at all you know i'll pull it back like five milliseconds <laughs> <laughs> like okay now i sound a little like those guys but not really <laughs> right. so it's, it's mo- mo- mostly that um and I, you know and essentially I mean, I get accused of, and rightly so, about my just emotionality, my singing being sort of preposterously over the top, which is probably true. But you know, in just trying to put a lot of emotion into singing in the same mm-hmm. in the same way that I was did, and I you know, I feel like if I feel like when I'm doing an okay job, it's when it's there, but it's not insanely there, which is sure. a, a lot of a lot of how he sang. I wanted to ask before I forgot, um, because this album is precious to you. How did you feel about Kanye? And Jay Z, their Otis. How did you feel about that? Oh, I mean, I'm sure that they did it. I mean, now obviously it's difficult to not when you talk about Kanye to not barf in your own heart. But this is before wow, you know. That's, that's a really graphic <laughs> metaphor. I like that. I do too. Uh, you know, I you know I'm sure that they they did it out of love. I mean, I'm. Um, I mean, it's not as if those guys don't know about music. Sure, you know? sure. Yeah. I, when I was looking this up last night, I was like, please, Lord, please let me get to a place where it says they cleared the sample. Oh, and, uh, I, yeah. And they did. Oh, yeah, that's they, good. They approached the family. Um, they said they were fans. And uh, and the I think his wife uh, was sort of, you know, iffy about letting the song go. And, uh, and then the daughter, her daughter convinced her this is a way to bring a younger generation to the music of Otis Redding, because everyone's going to want to know yeah, where, yeah. where the where the song title comes from. And eventually the mom fell in love with it, and that song, their version of it, became her ringtone. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
that's so sweet. that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty cool. New watch alert. New blows. Or the big face rolly, I got two of those. Arm out the window through the city. I'm a new slow. Cut back, snap back. See my cut through the holes. Damn easy and hope. Where the hell you been? Niggas talking real reckless. I could be wrong, but I think Otis is actually given featured credit on that. And I think that's a, a sampling thing. If you use up to a certain point, you... I don't know if you if you if it's mandatory, but you can at least ask to have featured credit because I think Marvin Gaye got that on like that Eric Sermon song oh, yeah, that yeah. that basically is just using one long like Marvin yeah. Loop. And I, you think about how many golden era hip hop songs would have had to add <laughs> featuring like whoever <laughs> just because of the amount of sampling they were using. So much, so much of the time used. <laughs> so we've been getting into the tracks here, and the thing about this album in particular is because it was deliberately set up as a sixteen-song greatest hits album. To ask you, what is the fire track? It's basically what is the greatest of the greatest hits? Yeah, it's 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 tough to pick. Um, but if you had to, I I would I'm. I mentioned it before, but probably I've got dreams to remember. Mm. Um, mm. Just I don't know. Uh, it's my my. It's funny that you should have mentioned Tramp because my sister and I we at, we see each other at holidays. We'll always do the back and we'll do the lyrics back and forth with each other. <laughs> um, she's a big Otis fan too. I gotta uh, see that, Jamie. I gotta see and yeah. hear that. <laughs> it's pretty dumb. Um, but I mean, I don't know. I I mean, I kind of mentioned my family much in this also, but I feel very very sentimental about this record and this yeah. this because it was towards the end of his career mm-hmm. uh and i don't know uh just as as you had mentioned before it's so it's so vulnerable and so i could just sort of see him walking down the street with his hands in his pockets yeah <laughs> and uh you know uh I, I don't know it's it's not you know guy you know just men from that era generally weren't willing to sort of cry in the rain a whole lot mm-hmm. and yeah. have it that's it i mean he doesn't get he doesn't get her back he doesn't fight anybody. He just his heart is busted, and that's the end. I know you said he was just a friend, but I saw him kiss you again and again. These eyes of mine, they don't fool me. Why did he hold you so tenderly? I've got dreams. How about you, Morgan? These arms of mine. Mm. Yeah, that's that's. I mean, now that you say that, I don't know. <laughs> That's really hard to pick. Yeah. Yeah. These arms are mine. They are lonely. Lonely and feeling blue. These arms are There's so many beautiful songs on here, but... But these arms of mine, um, I, I think because I was late to that party, late to that song, uh, it, it means more because I feel like I, I, I knew I've been loving you for so long. I knew a lot of the songs on here, uh, but that one I wasn't as familiar with and hadn't spent as much time with. And so that there's, was for me. There's a little bit in there where he, where he goes, come on, like every time. <laughs> it's like, oh, buddy. Oh, how great I will be. Uh, you know, that was the first time he was ever in a studio ever, too. Uh, wow. Yeah, I, I don't know how true this is, but I've heard, like, he was driving a friend of his there. It might have been Johnny Jenkins. I might have the name wrong. 
uh, to because I guess Stax would just let anybody come in and, and audition essentially. And Otis Otis drove him, and uh, he was bugging Al Jackson, saying, "Hey, what song I want to play? I have a song I want to play." And Al Jackson said, "Oh, yeah, okay, kid." So he sat down and he played it, and mm. uh, they just went, "Oh, this is amazing! We got to do it! We got to do it right now!" And then he just walked in off the street, and then that was that was it. His 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 first his first time at bat. <laughs> I got to confess, and, and as Morgan, you often say, "Confession is good for the soul." So good. Sitting on the dock of the bay, his biggest hits. I do not love this song, and maybe it's just because it's become overly familiar and it's been played out, but I also just feel like it doesn't feel in the same way like a lot of the other tracks do, and it's one of those things where as as greatest of the greatest hits as this is, anytime that it might come on a radio, I'm just going to switch the channel on it, and, yep. and I don't know if that if I'm alone on this island about this, but... You're not alone, because it, it, it conjures up my moments of failure as I try to whistle, so it's not a comfortable <laughs> memory, so I don't want to, you know, I don't, I don't want to go there. And it just doesn't feel like the rest of his catalog. And from what I understand, like the label was like, we don't like this. But he was so intent. He thought it was going to yeah. be a crossover hit. Which he, which he was which right. And then he right. was right. Posthumously, yeah. but still he was yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. But it yeah. just doesn't feel like the rest of the stuff that he's done. Now, normally we would ask about a sleeper track. But again, this is a greatest hits comp. So that's a little hard to answer. But because this was not a, you know, 10 CD, every single song he ever recorded, there are obviously choices being made. So the question I have for both, both of you is... If there was a different Otis song that isn't on this comp that you thought should have been on, what would you have liked to have included? Oh, for me, it would be Free Me. Sometimes I wonder, do you really love me? And if you don't, if you don't, you got to let me know. Mm. From Love Man. Mm. I wish that was on here. I mean, this is not necessarily like the best song that's missing from this, but just one that I love that I think actually would have worked really well here, which would have been hard to handle, um, which was another one oh, of the... Oh, yeah. That's on That's on an earlier best of, actually. Boys will call my dime by the loving, but that ain't nothing but a 10 cent love. Pretty little thing, let me like to count, cause mama, I'm so hard to hell and I, yes, I am. I mean, maybe it's partially because I'm, I'm, I'm partial to the fact that Marley Merle turned it into an incredible loop for the <laughs> symphony, but it's like a great funk jam. And even though I said earlier, the best, my favorite songs off this comp are the ballads, you know, the Stax's forays into funk are fantastic. Mm-hmm. And there are a few examples better than that than Hard to Handle. I think that would have been a great inclusion on here. It's also telling that not to go too far off on a Hard to Handle tangent, but this song has really great covers as well. I think Rare Earth does a really great mm-hmm. version of it. There's one by, oh, God, it's a There's female. terrible covers of it, too. Oh, who are you thinking of? By the Black Crows. Oh, yeah. Oh. I don't know if I need to hear that one. No, you do not. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it. So anything else that, you, that comes to mind that, that you would you would promote? Uh, I, I mean, speaking of Sam Cooke, I mean, he his, before he did These Arms of Mine, he was like almost all of his generation was a little Richard and... Uh, yeah. and uh, Sam Cooke, uh, yeah. that's the word. Devotees? De- devotee, but he yeah. basically sang like them. Yeah, right. yeah. And he, he, does, he does a really wonderful version of uh, Change Is Gonna Come. Oh, also. yeah. Yeah, this is, this, yeah. I mean, Sam Cooke's version, a la Aretha's With Respect, is obviously unbelievably untouchable, right. but Otis's is really wonderful also. Yeah. I said, mother, I'm down on my knees But there was a time that I thought 
somehow I thought I was still able to try to carry on. It's been I wanted to pick up on Little Richard. You mentioned Little Richard. Of course, Little Richard was uh, had a profound influence on Otis Redding, and Little Richard uh, inducted him into the Hall of Fame. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, oh he wow. did. Oh, that's cool. And um, during the speech, one of the things he said about Otis Redding was he said Otis Redding was a pillar of rock and roll, and I had never heard him categorized that way, pillar of soul music, R&B, but never that way. He also said he was surprised that he made it into the Hall of Fame before Otis, hmm. that Otis should have been there a lot earlier. He said their voices were so close mm. that the first time he heard Otis cover Lucille, he thought it was him. Oh. <laughs> um, that was an incredible uh, Hall of Fame induction speech. That's pretty good. That because he like sang most he of would it. Say. <laughs> you have to see it. He sang most of. Uh, it's like eleven minutes long. Oh, like in in the in induction speech. He it, yeah, he's, yeah, he sings a couple of times. He, he he sings sitting on the dock of the bay. Wow. Oh yeah, and adds his oh, little his hoop and holler, and then at the end he brings up uh, Otis's a widow. Mm. But but a wonderful moment to have someone that you know. Was had such a profound influence on him. That's, induct him. That's really interesting too. And I, I, because there's, uh, there's, I don't know if controversy is the right word, but just there's a, an unknown, not confirmation. I'm not sure how to put this. Rumor, rumor. I guess that that Otis had was was by and they had a relationship with Arthur Arthur Connolly, and obviously Little Richard, although he never admitted, is obviously sure. You know, gay as a goose. But I, I wonder if if, uh, I don't know. I wonder if that was. A more special thing for Little Richard be, because of because mm. of that, or you know, just mm. a little bit. Sure. I don't. Know, I don't even know if he really thinks about it any, anymore at all. Because he mentions in the speech, he said, "I gave him fifty dollars to stay in the Hilton or the Sheraton," and he said, "You know, I guess they were they were both staying there." And he said, "I asked him to come back to the room, but he didn't want to be in the room with me alone." Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I talked about that during the in, 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 in the induction oh, speech. Damn. You pan to the crowd that's like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Little Richard putting a lot of stuff on Front Street right there. Yeah. <laughs> His wife was in there like, yo. But it was just a it was a beautiful moment and um it was just a beautiful moment. I, I, I didn't know that until in prep for this chat, but but the whole induction speech speech is beautiful. I'll, I'll check it out. His voice, I mean little Rich's voice is at the top of his game and that's good. It's just really cool. You know Otis and I both are from Macon, Georgia. I reckon some people think you're too old, you can't sing it. See, is that see? Yes, see. That sounds so good. Sitting in the morning sun I be sitting when the evening comes Watching the ships roll in Then I watch them roll away again Yeah Sitting at the dock of the bay Watching the time this is one of those kind of impossible questions, but I'm going to ask it anyways, which is to imagine if he if he had not you know boarded that that fateful uh, plane ride, what his career could have looked like going into the 1970s, and and, and I'm not convinced it would have necessarily been an, an easy path to go because you look at the ones who made that that transition successfully, like like your Stevies or like your Marvins, there was an elasticity to both their voices. And their performance styles, which I think allowed it to adapt in different ways. Whereas I wonder if Otis would have just been like a 60s soul man, but kind of left out unable to make this transition into sure. funk, into the black exploitation era. Um, 
So that's one thought. But on the flip side, and I don't know if Isaac and him overlapped enough at Stax Volt to have been able to work together, but imagining a collaboration between those two, like what mm. would that have sounded like, you know? Probably pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> super, super good. And and I wonder because he uh, he died in 1967. Of course, next year would be you know Martin Luther King would die in Memphis. Would he mm. have somehow become the voice? Would he have transitioned to be the voice of civil rights? Would any of the of his songs, go, you know, have gone down that road? Mm. Because Stacks being in Memphis, I mean, they it's mentioned in the documentary how hard that hit them. Yeah. Um, how hard it hit the record label and the city of Memphis. Mm. So I wonder if if the tone of his songs or the subject of his songs had, would have gone in a different direction. Mm. I would think there'd be at least a very good Aretha Otis duet yeah. album, or at least a few songs out there, because yeah. how could you not have tried to make that happen? You know. And I know that uh, none of us are gigantic fans of Dock of the Bay, but... Uh, it's not a bad song. No, but it's just, but it's you know, it's like, a, yeah. unfortunately, it's almost like, it's like hearing a Bob Marley song. Like you never, you never, never need to hear him again. Even though, if if you cannot be anywhere near anyone else and you listen to it, you realize like the singing and the playing and the lyrics and the intent are yeah. untouchable. But right. you just the. But uh, I mean, I think because it was different. I mean, it's I've I've wondered about that too. I mean, maybe he would have done some things that were a little bit more expansive and mm-hmm. uh, possibly not as kind of precious as that song is, but, you know, moved out in the way that, you know, Marvin Gaye, uh, you know, did with what's going on and got, yeah. got a little bit more kind of cinematic sure. and broader with it. Like I said, an unanswerable question. Yeah. And uh, there's some people, it seems really obvious that they would have gone on, like in the Vernon Reed episode, you talked about like what else Jimi Hendrix would have done. Oh, and God, it seemed really yeah. clear that he would have gone on, you know, sure. to, right. to space music. Um, but it's not, not super super obvious that that Otis Redding would have done the right. same, or Sam Cooke for that matter. Yeah, you know, in terms of if he'd lived longer. So yeah, but, yeah. Otis Redding died on December tenth, nineteen sixty seven, in a plane crash involving several others. The night before he died, his last performance, December the ninth, was on the TV show Upbeat, where he performed "Try a Little Tenderness." All you got to do is try, try. He's sweating. He's just a man possessed. He keeps turning to the band. It was just hard to watch. So it does bring up, you know, thoughts of, you know, what would have happened had he not died, you know, so abruptly in the way that he did? What would, you know, what would his career have been? What mm-hmm. would the next couple of songs, what would the next album have been? And and I think you bring up Aretha Franklin, like now I'm just like, well, damn, what would that have sounded like? Yeah. And with that, if you had to describe this album, or really Otis in three words, what three words would you choose? Oh, I know this is a big part of your show and I had such a hard time. <laughs> Take your, Jamie, take your time. No pressure here. Right. Just take your time with it. Oh, this is so dumb, but this is really what it was for me, which was uh, University of Soul. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I, I, like learned, I, learned, I learned so much about music g- generally from this, and it, it set me on the path of, of listening to so many other records from, you know, of his, of his contemporaries. Mm-hmm. It, was, it, was a, it was a first step in, you know, not listening to the Thompson Twins. <laughs> <laughs> 
They have some jams though. They have, but you know. <laughs> but I feel it, you. It just it doesn't last. <laughs> <laughs> they ain't got a best of. They don't have a bunch of compilations. No. Ladies and gentlemen, let's hear for Otis Redding's wife, Miss Zelda Redding. Let's hear it. Come on. Let's stand up in the Miss Zelda Redding. Come on. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really feel honored that Otis is, has been inducted into the Hall of Fame. It's been uh, 21 years now, but it doesn't seem that long. We, um, we can't forget his music because it was so great. Thank you all. Well, that will do it for this episode of Heat Rocks with our special guest, Jamie Stewart. What are you working on these days? Uh, we have a new record in February, and uh, I'm writing a very dumb novel. Uh, <laughs> and uh, or Shushu has a new record, and this other, uh, another band I play in called Hexes is, is working on a, a record too. Um, hmm. So just gearing up for a crushing amount of touring but we have a new lineup so i'm feeling good about that with some some really good players that's great so mostly like gearing up for the new record and where can people find you online uh everything is shushu for life uh so twitter shushu for life and which i stole from the ghetto boys for life (laughs) (laughs) you've been listening to heat rocks with me oliver wang and morgan rhodes our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One of People Under the Stairs. Shout out to Thess for the hookup. Pete Rocks is produced by myself and Morgan, alongside Christian Duenas, who also edits, engineers, and does the booking for our shows. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and our executive producer is Jesse Thorne. We are part of the Maximum Fun family, taping every week live in their studios in the tender Westlake neighborhood ah. of Los Angeles. One last thing, here's a teaser for next week's episode, which features music writer Lindsay Zolads talking to us about Brian Ferry's These Foolish Things. The attitude of both playfulness but loving homage, too. They don't feel like ironic covers where he's mm. trying to poke fun at, at the Beatles and Dylan so much. Like Those are artists that he really deeply reveres, and I, I think that's what elevates this from the level of, like you said, like karaoke or or something like that. He's I, there's a lot of love and mm-hmm. fandom in these arrangements and yeah. in these kind of reimaginings of these really classic songs. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.